Greetings, dear listeners. This is another exciting episode of the Remnant Podcast. This week's episode is brought to you by Untucket. We'll hear more about them later, but we're thank we're glad that they are back to uh, sponsoring this podcast. Some of you may know that one of my favorite niche podcasts. It's not. It's slightly more obscure than the um, podcast I listen to about um, lesbian mores in the. Uh, Byzantine Empire, is this co- podcast called Commentary. And it's really interesting because basically what it is is they get a bunch of really smart people and they sit around a table, the editors of Commentary, the contributors to Commentary, and they all listen in real time as John Podhoritz talks a lot. And every now and then they kind of provide some punctuation for his monologues. And uh, and one of my favorite punctuation marks in the verbal stream that is John Podoritz's podcast uh, is Christine Rosen, who is back with us today um, after a long hiatus from the Remnant podcast. Welcome back, Christine. Thanks, John. I'm glad to be on. Uh, you have it doubly bad because, first of all, you're on a podcast with Pod. Yeah, triply bad, I should say. Second of all, it is so steeped in nerdy Jewish toxic masculinity. <laughs> and third of all, you do it from remote from Washington. So you Pod, who I think is probably afraid of, would, 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 would defer to you in person if he saw you face to face, can can ignore your gestures like, hey, I'm still here because you're in another city. Yeah, I'm, I'm in my sort of bunkered safe space here in D.C., um, and I'm the token woman splainer. But I have to tell you, there's been a huge amount of improvement in everyone's deference to the fact that I'm remotely phoning in. Um, and uh, I, I definitely feel heard on the podcast, uh-huh. I, and I feel like I can give my uh, woman's point of view when necessary. And uh, it is a, it's a wonderful collective nerd fest. It's great fun to be on. No, it's one of my favorite podcasts. Um, <laughs> And it's it's kind of there is an irony, right, about you of all people talking as if the contribution you make is as a woman. That's really not like <laughs> exactly. your political thing. No, it is not. Yeah. It's definitely not. So yes, I appreciate the irony of being the only gal on the podcast, as it were. <laughs> um, so uh, um, and you're just we have clarified for our, our non niche horde of listeners. Uh, uh, your title is senior social commentary. I'm senior writer uh-huh. officially because they wouldn't let me call myself Zarina. So I, I, I tried, I gotcha. but yes, senior writer okay. is my official title. Um, and uh, and you sort of co- cover the waterfront of the of of well, the waterfront of a whole bunch of issues that um, don't normally fit into the sort of classic neocon. Mm-hmm. silos, right? And so one of the ones that you're sort of into is, which I am too, and Pod is obsessed with, mm-hmm. is these this Varsity Blues yes. scandal. Yes. Um, this is where all of these masters of the universe and one percenters um, bribe their kids' ways or game the system into it. And you recently wrote a piece, um, not quite calling for Felicity Huffman's death penalty, but... <laughs> just a uh, little prison time. Just a little prison, a little prison time. time. So why don't you make the case for why Felicity Huffman should be, be in the stockade? So Felicity Huffman is the is going to be the first uh, of the parents who pled guilty to be sentenced. She's going to be sentenced later this week um, by a judge in Massachusetts. And her lawyers have asked for you know, community service, a little slap on the wrist fine. Um, she's so, so sorry. She wrote this seemingly heartfelt um, uh, statement about why she did what she did. So she's looking for leniency. 
the prosecutors have said she should do some jail time, even if it's just a month, mm-hmm. because she knowingly committed a criminal act. Uh, and uh, so that's their statement. I think she should. First of all, I think that the $20,000 fine that's being accepted by both sides of this is ridiculous. Yeah. She and her husband's joint net worth is $45 million by the most recent estimate. So this is that's nothing. That's like a quarter. So I I propose that at the very least, it should be the cost of four years of private college. That should be the fee because had her scheme succeeded, right? Because her daughter would have taken the spot of someone who'd actually uh, passed, uh, received the scores on the SAT that were required. And I do think she should do some jail time. And the reason I think that is that I read her, uh, the reports about her statement very closely to try to see whether as in all of these cases, whether she's upset that she was caught or she's upset because of what she did. Mm-hmm. And it's probably a little of both. Usually is. It usually is. Yeah. But but what I got a very strong sense of was that she's trying to play on the culture's understanding of motherhood and parenthood, mm-hmm. this idea that, oh, my God, it's such a rat race. It's so anxiety-inducing. It's so overwhelming. Oh, poor me. I was just doing what I thought was best. I was trying to give my daughter a fair shot. Yeah, that's the line I love. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, she says, you know, oh, he... And she also tries to make herself look like the mark of this con man, uh, William Singer, who mm-hmm. organized all of this, when, in fact, as soon as he suggested that she go ahead and, and uh, pay to have the SAT scores boosted... Although she claims to have done a lot of soul searching, she still made the wrong decision and said, yes, let's go do that. And I don't think she was all that naive. I think she's, you know, her zip code, like the zip codes in in the um, extremely wealthy suburbs of New York City, there's quite a few in the uh, Southern California area where parents have for years, beginning in middle school and elementary school, gamed a system where they go to a doctor and get their kids diagnosed with a so-called learning disability so that the kids have extra time on all of their standardized tests, which gives them an advantage. I, this drives me nuts for two reasons. One, because kids with real disabilities are then um, uh, competing against kids, competing against yeah, yeah, kids yeah. who aren't. Yeah. And it, it's an unfair advantage for the kids who don't get that special time. My um, daughter complains about this all the time. It's she a huge She knows problem. a lot of people yeah. who have no different cognitive abilities than my daughter does. But get unlimited time. And my, my daughter's biggest problem with standardized tests is time management. Yeah. You know? It is for everyone. The, yeah. It's a challenge. It, the test, that's one of the things that the tests are testing is the ability to think quickly under pressure when you have time limitations. Take those away. It's a huge advantage. That's what we do with this podcast as well. Exactly. <laughs> so I just think that uh, what Huffman revealed in her statement was an attempt to justify her behavior rather than true contrition for it. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, look, if Martha Stewart can survive federal prison, Felicity Huffman will do fine, especially if it's just a month or two. But I I would like to see a sentence of some prison time for her. Yeah, no, I, I think, you know, it's like, sort of like in some of these spy novels. I remember from a Tom Clancy one where before the Soviet Union is about to go to war, the first thing they have to do is shoot a few generals for lying in their reports about how things really are because mm-hmm. you need actual honesty about things. And that sends a message through the bureaucracy. Sending some A-lister – well. B-lister actress, but A-lister personality with a lot of money to a little jail time would have a sobering effect on a lot of parents. I know I would stop honing my Photoshop skills for my daughter's you know, <laughs> for her sailing uh, uh-huh. application. Water polo, water, water polo, water polo. Yeah. Well, but this, this, the other thing that I think it sends is a, is a message about. The ongoing debate we're having in this country about meritocracy. There's this new book out by what's his last name. It's a Yale Law School professor, Herskovitz, yeah, yeah. uh, I think, uh, has just is coming out with this new book about uh, decrying meritocracy and saying it doesn't work anymore. The whole system is 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 a sham. And in some ways, if you look at how the system functions, 
Huffman's argument that she was just trying to give a fair shot makes sense if you think of the applicant pool as being already decided for alumni, uh, high-dollar individuals, legacies, athletes, and affirmative action folks. It actually does leave a pretty much smaller pool of options for those who don't fall into those categories. His argument's a little broader. He thinks it's hollowing out the middle class and that the whole thing is rigged for rich parents and um, what you're seeing is he wants more open admissions, more kids allowed to these elite schools. I'm persuaded by parts of his argument. Mm-hmm. I haven't read it. The book is just just out this week, so I'm going to read it. But this debate about meritocracy is a useful one to have, I think, especially when you start thinking about trust in institutions like higher education, the media, which is populated largely by yeah. people who were formed by this so-called meritocracy. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm more I'm more and more sympathetic to the critiques of the, what we call the meritocracy in terms of the actual system on the ground that mm-hmm. we live in in America today. I am not sympathetic to critiques of merit. No. Right? Exactly. Which, are, exactly. which is an important distinction to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. There are people who, you know, they're still mostly on the serious left, but who want to merge those two things and think that merit itself is a loaded, con- a bad concept of white supremacy or, mm-hmm. you know, privilege or whatever. Merit's a good idea. Um how we apply it in real life strikes me as to sound woke problematic, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, what would you do to actually deal with, like, if you wanted to make the system more fair, mm-hmm. what would be your, what would be the, the the policy solutions that you're actually sympathetic to? I'm sympathetic to the idea of getting rid of the uh, the absolute monopoly. Uh, f- it calls itself nonprofit, but the profit it makes is astonishing. The college boards uh, hold on yeah. standardized testing and to have alternatives. I mean, that right now it's the SAT, the ACT, but more and more colleges are saying we're not going to use those sorts of standardized tests. We're going to have other means of assessing this. I think if you have an endowment over $10 million, just $10 million, I mean, when yeah. we're looking at the IVs, it's, it's, you know, multiple orders of that. If you have that large an endowment, you should guarantee a certain percentage of your class's applicants be from a cert, uh, the lower income threshold. Now, it's not about race. It's mm-hmm. not about geography or legacy or athletics. It's a, it's about household income. And make sure you have uh, systems in place so that no one can game that, because even that can be gamed, right? People right. move to, to certain places. And I think that you, if you have a commitment to uh, equality in the broadest sense, you look for the, the, the people who, from those environments, actually have demonstrated merit, however they can, however you want to measure it in terms of grades or recommendations. Um, and those kids should get a chance because those are the kids. That, the, the thing that's astonishing to me about especially the elite private institutions of higher education is how similar all the kids are, even though they might look different. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're, there's the multicultural rainbow, but they all, you know, ski in Aspen every right. winter. I mean, it's it's really not a meritocracy. And I think the flip side of that is what de Blasio, what you're saying, is what de Blasio is trying to do to the competitive high schools in New York City, where he's saying, well, because we don't like the outcome, because the people we think should have merit aren't able to pass certain tests and, and do the work, um, then let's just blow the whole thing up. Yeah. Um, Which I think is outrageous. It's insane. And, and yeah. terrible. Yeah, right? I totally agree. I mean, I, the thing I always go back to on this is, is my friend Ron Bailey. You must know, mm-hmm, him. Mm-hmm. Ron. And at some point, we're actually going to have him on the podcast, and it'll be weird. Um, uh, but Ron... He basically used to tell me 25 years ago that the SAT saved his life. He was convinced, for people who don't know, Ron is this brilliant guy. He's a science reporter for Reason Magazine, serious libertoid, and um, one of my closest friends. And um, he is convinced that gypsies stole him from a family of 
um, liberal Jews in the Upper West Side of Manhattan <laughs> and deposited them in in rural uh, Western Virginia, where he grew up on a farm, kind of thing. And you know, was, the image I always have is a sort of a Tom Sawyer guy with his overalls rolled up, and he's walking barefoot to the mailbox three miles away to get his copy of the New Yorker. <laughs> anyway. He got into UVA because of the SATs, right? I mean, it was a classic Jeffersonian thing of someone who had no social contacts, no access to privilege, but actually nailed a test that was supposed to find these diamonds in the rough out there in the world. And that's why I still have a real soft spot in my heart for the SAT. I mean, I didn't blow away the SAT. I did fine. But if it hadn't been for the SAT, I would have had even a worse college application experience than I did, which was quite bad. Um, Well, if you're going to keep it, then you have to provide – the college board should use some of the massive amount of profit it makes every year to make sure that the kids in lower income uh, schools and school districts have access to SAT prep like the elite does. Now I will say – I mean I didn't have any SAT prep. I showed up for a test. I took it. I did – you know, I did okay. Yeah. Compared to the kids who had, you know, intensive uh, training and teachers and tutors and classes, they did much better because they're taught how to take the test. No, I agree with that. And that's where I think even when we were taking the test, there's been a huge change in ramping up of the intensity of the prep for kids from elite backgrounds that other kids just don't have access to. I mean, I had no idea that even existed. Yeah. Um, I was shocked when someone told me I could have gone to the local bookstore and gotten an SAT prep book. I didn't even know those existed. So I think that's it's that lack of access to information and the availability because of financial constraints that could be easily, again, that could be easily fixed. So if you want to keep the standardized tests, there has to be more fairness in the preparation for them so that you can, then again, I agree, you can find those diamonds in the rough because there is some predictive value to those tests in terms of long-term success. Yeah. I mean, I, I would almost be tempted that every year they completely, they come up with a new version of the test. So you can't be tutored to it because right. he's like, you know, oh, this year there are no analogies or this year, there's, you know, whatever. Because I had the same experience. I, I did a little, tiny little bit of prep for the SAT, not much. And the first time I took it and like, I guess it was 11th grade, completely buttered the math section. It did really, really bad. You're here, yes. Did well in the verbal, <laughs> just, you know, whatever. And then I got a tutor. I had three sessions with the tutor who just explained all the stupid mistakes I made, and my my score increased like thirty five percent on the math. You know, yeah. I mean, I think the tutoring does help. It Um, does. Actually, true story. So I took my second SAT at I think it's Martin Luther King High School in New York. On what was that? Like behind Lincoln Center, Mm -hmm. that big school. Mm -hmm. And to this day, I think the kid sitting in front of me cost me at least like a hundred points (laughs) because he was like a hippie, and and he's sitting there and. They say, take, you know, take out your pencils, open up the test. And he turns the first page and I hear him just very quietly whisper to himself, oh, man. <laughs> and <laughs> the wafting patchouli yeah, smell. The, the, the weed or like no one told sweat. me this was going to be. And then like virtually every other page he opens, he goes, oh, oh, <laughs> oh, man. Like like that. And there's this panic. Like he had no idea fractions were going to be on the test. I thought it was so funny. That it was just this crazy distraction. But anyway, um, um, but no, this gets to the sort of larger point about something I say all the time on this 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 podcast is that complexity is a subsidy, right? So if you have access to tutors and yeah. and and consultants and all that kind of stuff, uh, complexity actually helps you because it hurts. It serves as a barrier to entry to the right. Ron Bailey's, you know, out in the wilderness. 
And that's kind of why I why I think the de Blasio thing is so evil, mm-hmm. right? Because exactly for listeners who don't know, it's 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 what Stuyvesant, right? Well, Bronx Science Stuyvesant that the elite the elite high schools in um, in New York City that the only way to get in recommendations don't matter. Nothing matters except the score on a test that all students take. Right. Um, and what we're what what they're finding, of course, is that the the Kids who do best on this test are the ones who who insanely prep for it. They tend to be um, Asian students. Right. They're not wealthy kids. A lot of them are like the the daughters and sons of you know Bangladeshi taxi drivers. I mean, right. these are not elite, you know, bankers' children. Um, they're scoring very well, and the but the number of African American and Hispanic students scoring well has been going down dramatically in in recent years, and that's that's been a cause for concern. And I I have no problem with people saying, why is this happening? Why aren't these kids able to to meet this this mark of of this challenge that's fine but what de blasio's answer is is leaves those kids leaves that unanswered he doesn't really care about those kids he just wants the optics of success to make sure it looks you know the way he wants it to look in terms of diversity it's sort of like the people who um during the height of like the war on terror stuff where they hated the the profiling of young middle eastern Mm -hmm. men at Mm -hmm. airports so the upshot of their position was we should needlessly search a lot more Norwegian old ladies. Frisking grandma. Yeah, fr- right. right. Frisking. If we frisk more grandmas, more white grandmas, then the Better share off. of Asian or Middle Eastern men who are being searched will be smaller in the overall statistics, even though there's no reason to do any of that other stuff. Yeah. No, and it's it's it, the interesting thing, too, is that it pits these often immigrant parents who are who believe truly that educational opportunities, the way out of the lower middle class or, or working class where they are. They want their kids to do better. Um, and it's it's pitting them against a, a municipal government that's condescending to them and saying, you know, actually, you're you're privileged because you're doing well on this test. And it, it and it echoes, you know, some of the other debates going on, like the case of Asian American students who are suing Harvard University right. for quotas and whatnot. So I find um, I actually think long term these sorts of debates about race and achievement are useful and helpful because it shows just how diverse this country is. It really is not a black and white issue. Right. But we're, it's all going to shake out over the next 10 years and eventually when one of these cases reaches the Supreme Court. Um, but pitting Asian students against black students in a race for who's more privileged or less or more of a victim is, is just not a winning hand to play. Sorry, yeah. Bill de Blasio. <laughs> But, you know, from a Leninist perspective, we can enjoy because it it's heightening the contradictions, right? Um, no, I think I actually talked about this with um, your commentary uh, colleague, uh, Noah Rothman, mm. about the um, the Asian kids. When that story broke, there was this whole thing about how basically the reason why Asian, some, of the, some of the Asian kids were being rejected wasn't that they were Asian. It wasn't – it was basically that they weren't woke enough, mm-hmm. right, that they weren't – that their social consciousness wasn't sufficiently raised, and someone had a quote about how they didn't want their school to become just a uh, an engineering grind school, right? Mm-hmm. And I see this this gets to the Felicity Huffman mm-hmm. gaming the system thing. I would rather everything be um, left to a test at more schools, and maybe not all schools, because you know you need some quirkiness, but then leaving it in the hand of administrators who decide that basically. Some Asian applicants are, in effect, traitors to their status as people of color because they are not offering the right shibboleths mm-hmm. um, that clue them in that they are 
they're they are part of the social justice stuff. And exactly. You think a lot. I think a lot of that stuff is going on, mm-hmm. and it 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 is creating the homogenousness of mm-hmm. you know when you're talking about how you know they all look different, but they think the thing think the same. It's like Clinton's stuff about one in a cabinet that looks like America. It's, right. Yeah, it's like seventeen. Liberal Democratic lawyers who all come in different shapes and hues, but they all think alike. Right? And they all went to the same two law schools. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's a problem. That, that's definitely a problem. Um, where did you go to college? I, I went. I'm proud and slightly abashed to say I went to the University of South Florida in uh-huh. Tampa because that was where I got a scholarship. I had to pay for college myself. I had a full ride on a bassoon scholarship because I played the bassoon. Bassoon. Which is a weird instrument that evidently people will give you money if you'll play. But I was a history major. Um, so, yeah, I went there undergrad. I finished it in three years. I uh-huh. was not. I, I was ready to leave Florida. And then I went to grad school at Emory University. So uh-huh. I am not a product. I mean, Emory's a great school, and I had a wonderful yeah, no, yeah. graduate experience there. I am not a pr- product of the Ivy League, and I have it, – it probably makes me an extremely harsh judge of people like Felicity Huffman. I, too, struggled with math portions of standardized tests, um, both the GRE and the, uh, and the SAT. And when she said in her statement that part of giving her daughter a fair shake was like, I didn't want her budding acting career and her auditions. I didn't want her to be prevented from trying to audition at these great schools just because she can't do math well. I was like, well, first of all, she said this in her statement. And this is supposed to be exculpatory of her work as a parent. Um, I had I had no sympathy for that. I'm like, lots of us aren't, you know, we're more humanities oriented. So I went to USF. Um, it was, I was a cog in a large wheel. It's a uh-huh. big state university, not even a very well-ranked one at the time I went there. They didn't even have a football team when I went there. And it was Florida, so, you I'm know, I'm surprised Florida. in Florida they didn't just shut it down if they didn't have a football team. Yeah, well, basically there was a lot of, that That was the ongoing discussion when I was an undergraduate was, you know, why don't we have a football team? It was this dark night of the soul every uh-huh. every fall when it was, you know, reminded that people had to get in their car and drive to Gainesville. Was the answer ever us. because the Jews don't want it to have <laughs> <laughs> Too busy controlling the weather. So, <laughs> um, but I had—I will say this: I had wonderful professors. You had to really search and find the good ones. But once you found them, they were amazing. I had wonderful, wonderful history professors and a couple of great political science professors. They steered me towards graduate school. They said, "This is, you know, if you like to read and write and research uh, the past, you can do this. You can you can go on to graduate school and do this. You can do it after that." They were wonderful people, um, and they worked within a system that has, is not well ranked. But I had some extremely wonderful teachers who I'll always be grateful to for what they what they gave me. So I'm 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 torn about this because um the last time I had you on, I asked you something about premillennialism versus postmillennialism, whatever, and you completely ducked it. And because Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> um and the only reason I asked it, because it's not a question I ask of everybody, mm-hmm. but your I believe it was your PhD thesis became your book Preaching Eugenics, yeah. which a book I have read. And and it used to be like deep into all that kind of stuff. And part of the problem was is that because I asked you about that, our friend David Bonson, mm-hmm. um, like it was this, you know, it was it was it was like you ever watch the Wonder Pets? You know, where the kids go, There's an animal in Twubble, right? It was like Bonson was like there's a theological debate in Twubble and he went nuts and he and he wormed his way onto the podcast and we talked about it for Excellent. twenty minutes. That's that's twenty minutes I'm not gonna get back. Excellent. But um That's that's a that's appropriate punishment for yeah. me. Uh no, but I, I actually I do love that stuff. But so I, I do want to talk about a little bit since you talked about going to grad school and all this kind of stuff, but I won't get too deep in the weeds in it. But we did hear recently, and I talked a little bit about this with uh, Lyman Stone, who's going to be on the podcast this week as well. I don't know if this is coming out before or after that one. Um, 
where we heard uh, Bernie Sanders hearkening back to <laughs> some arguments of yore. Oh, yes. Um, and I was just wondering what you thought about all that. Uh, for listeners who don't know, Bernie Sanders basically bought into – you got to ask a question from the floor from like a, a uh, Paul Ehrlich type in Mufti asking about the population bomb and – he basically came out in favor of using abortion and birth control to keep the darker and duskier peoples um, under control population wise or something like that. I mean, yeah. a little unfair. So he yeah. So he there's some debate about whether he, people are dramatically misconstruing his remarks. I actually carefully read what he said, and I don't think it's overly dramatic to pick up that thread that he that he started stitching there. Um, and it, there is a direct line from the sort of uh, alarmism of Paul Ehrlich's, you know, population bomb books of the 70s back to Thomas Malthus and his concern about growth and population and, and draw a through line to where we are with Bernie um, and the modern environmentalism movement. Because what I'm what you're seeing now more in the culture is is a, a willingness to talk about having children in the same way that people talk about whether it's responsible to own an SUV. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, triggers all of my, whoa, we don't, th- this is not, this is a qualitatively different right. discussion. If you want to talk about, you know, resource use and number of children versus resource use in your gas guzzling SUV. So what I saw Bernie do is completely elide that and talk about, well, uh, he tried ineffectually to frame it as, oh, well, women's right to their own bodies. And then he did the most patronizing. And again, I don't know why the left woke folks aren't calling him out for this. He assumed w- women's intentions and not only women, but women of color in, in you know, regions of the world that are poverty stricken and where they don't have any privilege. So here he is, you know, Bernie-splaining to all these women in, in countries where he thinks, oh, I know what they need. Right. I know what they want. They want access to birth control and they want access to abortion because that's I, I know these women. I know that's what they want. I found that wildly condescending, first yeah, of all. Yeah. And then I'm very concerned with the sort of they're, they're the eugenic overtones of much of the modern environmentalism movement. I mean, if, if even Prince Harry in the United Kingdom is going around saying, I'm only going to have two kids because you shouldn't have more than two kids. I'm like, give me a break, Mr. Private Jet Flying, right. you know, uh, Toff. I don't need you to tell me how many kids to have. But that that discussion is, I think, extremely powerful among younger generations. And if you look at their responses, there was this recent NBC News um, poll that the Wall Street Journal did a big piece about. One of the things that younger generations don't think of as a priority besides patriotism and religion is having children. Mm. There's a big generational gap now. So it's not – he's speaking to an audience that wants to hear that message and has already embraced it to some extent. So that worries me too because yeah. – uh, you know, we don't have to. We can. You can look at Japan and some other countries where they're not reaching replacement um, numbers with their population, and that has a huge number of cascading social and cultural effects for a society. Yeah, I mean, it's, so I mean, I don't want to repeat, but I had this great conversation with Lyman Stone, who's a scholar here and does uh, de- mm-hmm. economics and demographic stuff, and he made a pretty solid case that you could argue that that. The number that that having children, particularly in the developed world, having more children is better for climate change than having fewer hmm. because you end up spending the money that you would have spent on kids who are pretty uh, carbon non-intensive mm-hmm. um, and spending it on trips to Paris, mm-hmm. you know, or South America or Machu Picchu or right. whatever, you know. And, and the more kids you have, the more you tend to recycle and conserve resources like clothing right. and whatnot, you know. Um, well, and I, I mean, and fundamentally, to speak to Bernie's ridiculous uh, statement, children, he's, children are a gift 
right? They're not, it's, it's not a zero-sum game. It's a, it's a gift, not a liability. It's not a resource that, I mean, it, it's, and we should approach those questions with that spirit. Now, we can say that as, you know, we're in the developed West, and it's easier to make that argument, and we all pour tons of money into raising our children and do everything we can, see Felicity Huffman sometimes to an extreme. But this idea that we should judge other people's choices by the rubric of, you know, it's the same thing as whether you use a plastic or a paper straw, it just, I find right. it astonishing. Well, and also, um, just the very notion that a middle-class woman in Kinshasa and a middle-class woman in Beirut and a middle and an upper-class woman in Myanmar all want the same things as their neighbors, never mind as someone, you know, thousands of miles away. It's right. sort of ridiculous. But there is a long tradition in uh, socialism of looking at human beings as units of production. Yes, so exactly. There's yeah. a consistent... It's definitely on brand for Bernie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not great for the country. <laughs> um. So are you uh, – I get the sense that sometimes you don't necessarily want to talk about such things, but do you have a uh, – is there are, there are there people in the Democratic primaries that you are less horrified than, more horrified by, that kind of thing? Well – How do you do your triage of, yeah. of, of the current political climate? So I – if I had to pick – if I was a Democratic voter and I had to pick someone in the primary, I'd be the boring person who picks Joe Biden. Yeah. Um, even though I don't think he's a great politician, I think given the alternatives, it's it he is a stopgap against the sharp movement to the left that the Democratic Party has been making for years. And I think if you look at I think the trajectory of Elizabeth Warren is an interesting example because a lot of what she said and did as a senator I had no problem with. I mm. think she she had some interesting policy notions, particularly about, you know, how, how federal government policy impacts families. And, and I like some of the stuff she said about breaking up big tech. Um, dual income trap yeah, stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, but she's become more uh, one note progressive and less interesting and diverse a thinker, which, of course, she has to be as, as a politician. But I think she'd probably govern that way, too, because that's the direction the younger folks in her party are headed. So what I like about Biden is that um, he's not playing the woke game. He refuses to engage, which I think is brilliant as, as a matter of strategy, yeah. because otherwise all he would be doing is fighting those uh, claims. Uh, I think there's a reason that he still has a solid base among African-American Democratic voters that none of the others have. Um, and I think it's because they trust that he knows what he's doing and isn't going to wildly try to transform society, which is... Although it's interesting. It skews so much. It skews older and female. Yes. yes. Which is an, one of these interesting divides on mm -hmm. the Democratic side. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that he is not over-promising. What he's promising is, let's all just calm down. I mean, right. he, he's the he's trying to be the grown-up in the room. And it's, it's ironic to me that, you know, uh, all these 70 and 80-year-olds are fighting about who's the grown-up in the room, and he's clearly the grown-up in the room. Um, so, I, I mean, if I was a Democratic primary voter, it's a boring choice, but I would go with that. And, and in terms of electability and going up against Trump, I do think he's the one who can who can put up a good fight mm -hmm. against Trump because he's not going to be rattled or or engage with Trump on Trump's terms. He's just going to do his own thing. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I more and more come around to that. I mean, again— I can't personally pull a lever for either of them, yeah. you know, yeah. but um, uh, but I don't really care about my vote anyway. Um, if you live in D.C., it doesn't matter. Like, uh, yeah. yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> no, and so, <laughs> but I, you know, I wrote a piece a little while ago arguing that Biden should run a front porch campaign mm -hmm. and just stay out of the news, you mm -hmm. know. And, and I was talking to a Democratic activist about this recently, and they were trying to make the case, well, look at the size of Warren's crowds. And I was like, well, yeah, but that's young people who are engaging in the process. Biden's base 
are old people who are sick of the drama. They know who they're going to vote for. So why go to a rally? You know, and they turn out and vote. And they'll turn out and vote because you know there's you get you get extra Jello at the home on election day. Um, <laughs> Uh, that's unfair. So um, <laughs> that'll all be us one day. Just <laughs> but, yeah. um, so you mentioned um, that you want to break up. Or you were sympathetic to some of Warren's stuff about big tech. Yes. Um, Make your case for this, because I, <laughs> I and I guess I'm, you know, there's there is a, a almost Bircherisk movement on the right these days to turn big tech into something that I don't think it is. Right. And I'll give you one second to think about this because I just want to make this one quick point about I am generally in favor of creative destruction and disruption. And few things are um, as valuable in that regard than the disruption to the classic stodgy shirt market. And that's why I want to talk about Untuck It. Have you ever wondered why traditional button-ups look so long and baggy? That's because they were never meant to be worn that way. Untucked shirts were specifically designed to be worn untucked. Untucked is the brand you've been looking for. It's the original untucked shirt, a modern solution to an old problem with no tucking or tailoring required. It's sort of the toga for the 21st century. No matter your size or shape, their shirts are the perfect untucked length. Have you ever been frustrated with shirt buying in the past? Well, now they make it so much easier because you can choose from over 50 fit combinations on the web or in one of their stores. Um, you can pick out the size and the cut and the look that fits you best. And one of the things I like about Untuck It is that I am increasingly, as, as I go into my middle age and I am starting to, I'm, I'm getting back on a health regimen because I've, I've found all the weight that I lost. Um, and it, sometimes I worry that I, uh, um, I'm getting so large that smaller pundits are going to start circling me in a loose orbit. But one of the things I like about Untuck It is that they're comfortable that you can wear to work stuff, particularly on the West Coast, but you can wear to work stuff without looking like you're trying to dress up too hard and without looking like you're trying to be too casual. So anyway, you should try it on in person at one of Untuck It's 50 stores or go to untuckit.com to get started. They even offer free shipping and returns on all orders in the U.S. You can save 20% on your first order by using my code, DINGO, at checkout. That's untuckit.com, promo code DINGO, D-I-N-G-O. Okay. Wait, Sorry about that. Wait. Before we go on, uh-huh. I'm making a cameo appearance. In, in that copy, there was something about struggling to buy shirts. Uh-huh. You're going to – it's not going to be hard for you to think of what that made me think of. Struggling to buy shirts and struggling to buy pants are completely different things. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wouldn't know. I, I hear the expert. I'm very uncomfortable right now. <laughs> uh, well, no, he, you know what he's referencing? Uh, yes, okay. Because yeah, Donald Trump says, I don't know how to buy pants. And in fact, I know how to buy pants. I'm not – brilliant at it i am not the michelangelo of pants buying but i can do it and uh so there's that but anyway um and uh i don't know what the untucked equivalent of pants would be anyway but anyway all right so big tech big tech right so um I had the opportunity uh, in over the summer to write a piece for commentary kind of laying out the case against Facebook or just basically saying, what do we do with Facebook? And I think Facebook's a good example of some of the struggle we're having right now with these companies because I agree. I'm, I'm extremely uncomfortable with any effort to have the government involved in 
imposing neutrality. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I get that. Jo- I like that Josh Hawley has been really proactive on a lot of this stuff. I like that Ted Cruz is concerned about bias with these platforms. But they're kind they're kind of missing the point, I think, because the real challenge and the real challenge, if you're a First Amendment conservative, which I am, who believes in free markets, which I do, is that these companies no longer play by any rules because they're unlike any kind of corporation we've ever had before. Mm. They are squelching competition preemptively. So it would I think it would be fine for Facebook to allow, you know, crazy people to live stream their crazy activities, uh, no matter how partisan or weird or or potentially insightful. uh, to violence, um, as long as there were there was an alternative, if you didn't want to be on that platform and see that kind of thing, to go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And there, every single person in the United States could quit Facebook today, and they would have nowhere to go. And Facebook would chug along because most of its users are now outside the U.S. It wants to develop its own global currency now. It is basically functioning as a paranational state in many parts of the world. Um, I think Mark Zuckerberg's ambitions are. Uh, vast. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think he thinks he had like Felicity Huffman. I don't think he has to play by the rules because I think he thinks of himself as a visionary. And I think that what is missing from a lot of our discussion about big tech it, in the these questions about, you know, should they be monitored for neutrality? Should they be broken up? I'm a big fan of breaking up companies like Facebook, making them get spin off their smaller businesses that they purchase, like Instagram, WhatsApp, some of these smaller companies that they bought in order to absorb and prevent any other competitors from coming into the market. And they've been doing that. You know, they've bought something like 70 companies in 15 years. I mean, they're extremely aggressive about buying up potential competition. And I think that is not good for innovation. I don't think it's good for healthy free market competition. So I would be some of the antitrust stuff that's going on. I'm extremely enthusiastic about. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the regulatory piece so far has been that's ramping up. I mean, we see that with FTC and FCC are doing more to uh, look into regulations. The fines they've issued these companies mean nothing to mm-hmm. these companies because they're so small. The state's attorneys general are now starting to look at antitrust uh, efforts at the state level. I think that's good. I mean, look at the YouTube situation from the other week where you know YouTube was basically exploiting children in order to increase its ad revenue. And they were given a not even a slap on the wrist, you know, a, oh, don't do that again. Mm-hmm. They'll do it again. They, why not? Why wouldn't you? I mean, if you look at just the cost ratio for them. It's like getting a speeding ticket or, you know, you're not being asked to give up your Lamborghini. You're just being told pay 20 bucks for driving it too fast. So they're going to pay the 20 bucks and keep driving. I mean, I feel like if you want to talk about big tech as a threat to democracy or as a threat to civil conversation, you have to talk about where the alternatives are for people who don't use those. And I say that as someone who doesn't use Facebook and doesn't use Twitter and never has. I've never been on those sites. Um, there is no alternative. Publish on those? I mean, don't you lurk a little on Twitter? No? I lurk on Twitter to see what other people do to themselves. I've sensed your they, they Yes. <laughs> I, I love – I do enjoy, as everyone does, the self-immolation that happens daily on Twitter. Um, and I do think that the one thing that I'm glad to see with all the talk about big tech is the consumer questioning how much they're willing to be manipulated. I think it's less about, you know, oh, they're serving up ads. Most people don't care. I mean, if you go on those sites, you know that you're being served up ads. For me, it's the design choices that are being made that actually <laughs> – encourage people um, to stay on the site and behave in ways that that uh, are perhaps not good for them as individuals or for civil debate. Holly's efforts to 
the addiction uh, legislation, I'm not on board with that. I, mm. I think that, you know, I'm, I'm, I become extremely libertarian in those sorts of arguments because I think people need to self-regulate mm-hmm. or just don't use the service. And we, we all have friends who've gotten off Twitter because they're like, you know what, this is not good for me. And mm-hmm. that's, that's how it should be. But I think in terms of from the antitrust perspective, yeah, I think companies like Facebook in particular, probably Amazon in terms of how it squelches competition and boosts its own products on the site, there's room there for tweaking. Um, in the same sense that these place, these sites have done a lot of good for people. I mean, it's not they're not all evil. Facebook, though, is the one because of its social media component and because of what we've seen from uh, in in the last couple of elections about how easy it is to manipulate their system and how completely unconcerned Facebook leadership is about that. I think the government might need to get in there a little bit, but but with a scalpel, not with a sledgehammer. All right. So let me let me push back a little bit on this. I mean, I I have a Facebook page mm. that um, uh, just posts stuff that I've written, whatever. But I don't use Facebook. I don't. Um, I'm not on Facebook. I don't go to Facebook unless Jack tells me to look at something on the page, which is you know occasional. And so when you say that if as a part of your antitrust argument that if people decided to get off Facebook, they would have nowhere else to go. What what does that mean? What is the product that you think they're getting from Facebook that they cannot get anywhere else because Facebook's the only one that provides it? Well, in, if you're a small business owner, for uh-huh. example, your engagement with your potential customers is, is – Facebook is extremely useful for that. If you're organizing any kind of um, – or group, you know, I mean, from from you know a frisbee league on campus as, as an undergraduate to you know a group that wants to organize and protest something that they disagree with. Facebook is a hugely effective organizing tool, and it's difficult to find others that work as well that has have the reach of Facebook. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I think for younger generations, Facebook is complete. They don't use Facebook at all. I mean, they right. might have a profile on there, but they don't. They they don't. That's not how they're engaging with each other. But that's why Facebook bought WhatsApp and Instagram. Instagram is where they're engaging now, mm-hmm. and they own Instagram. So, mm-hmm. and what Zuckerberg has tried to do in the last few years is really integrate all of those of all those properties. And he's doing it in a way that the founders and creators of WhatsApp and Instagram have all left Facebook. And they've left Facebook publicly stating they disagree with the vision of what Zuckerberg wants to do with those alternative, you know, mm-hmm. internal Facebook properties. And mainly they're concerned about the privacy issues. And that to me is pretty that pretty outspoken way of saying he's this is all going to be under Facebook's rubric. And the, the ethos of Facebook is everything must redound to Facebook. They don't really care about their users because anything they do on the site is it benefits Facebook. They don't, it, it doesn't really matter if the users benefit or not because they're all, you know, I mean, where else would they go? Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at even the apologies that people like Sheryl Sandberg and Mark Zuckerberg issue after the latest privacy breaches, it's basically, we're sorry you're upset. But we, that's how right. they apologize. Um, and, and as someone pointed out a couple of years ago, the first four major Facebook posts that, that Mark Zuckerberg ever uh, put on his own account, they were all apologies for some sort of horrific privacy breaches. So yeah. my concern is not – I do worry about small businesses and people who rely on social networking, particularly outside of the U.S., in order to communicate. And this is why I think he wants to move into banking and other areas where he, Facebook can have its tentacles into uh, much more private information uh, that people share. Because down the road, Facebook sharing information with you know your bank might not – 
concern you. It would concern me. But when, when we start talking about health insurance or medical data, things like that, that does start to worry me in mm-hmm. terms of privacy. And, and we do not have a lot of control over third-party sharing of our information already. And Facebook only wants to make that harder for us to have control over. Yeah. I mean, I, I, again, I'm, I have not put an e- enormous amount of thought into some of this stuff. I, The things I don't like about Facebook um, have less to do with the privacy stuff. Um, although I think creating tools for Americans to have better privacy protection sounds like a totally legitimate use of government power, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is not um, – um, that's not Orwellian to me at all. It's 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 like enforcing property rights. Right. right? If you're enforcing privacy rights, it's, a, it's enforcing a kind of property right. So if there's smart legislation on that, I'm all for it. If it costs Facebook money, doesn't bother me a whit. The stuff I don't like about Facebook is the stuff I generally don't like about social media in general. And I think that that social me- that that Twitter and Instagram are probably worse, even though Instagram is now part of Facebook, as you point out. It's the it's that fear of being left out stuff that affects mm-hmm. teenagers mm-hmm. and young people and the general tendency of the way it encourages young people to live performative lives. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a point I keep coming back to because I think it's so interesting. I got from Yuval. Um, Yuval talks about how the changing understanding of institutions in our culture where the traditional understanding of an institution uh, – there are lots of different understandings. I'm not talking about economics as a rule or anything like that. Stuff. But an institution – is a place that forms character, mm-hmm. right? It's church. The classic example that I always use is the Marines. You go in a damn hippie, you come out a Marine, right? Mm-hmm. And big problem in our culture is the way in which we now use – people are incentivized, feel incentivized to use institutions as platforms to perform on and to exploit rather than platforms to bend themselves to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump use the major parties that way. Um, you can go down and once you start thinking in those terms, you can see it everywhere. And the way young people use Facebook and Instagram and I guess uh, um, YouTube, I mean, obviously YouTube um, is is this performative thing where you're trying to show off that you're this great line by Montesquieu where he says, if all I'm going to butcher it, but if all people cared about was being happy, that would be fairly easy to accomplish. The problem is that we all want to seem happier than other people. And that becomes really difficult because you can never tell how happy other people are, right? Right. And Facebook encourages that kind of cultural thing or social media encourages that kind of cultural thing where we're we're telling kids that first of all, they need to be performative. And mm-hmm. second of all, we're telling kids that you should rub it in the faces of other. It's like an en- envy creating machine. Yes. I don't know how you regulate against that. You can't. Well, so that that's where I, I completely agree with everything you just said. And it's especially concerning for the kids who are kind of raised on all this stuff, um, even if they have thoughtful parents who try to place limits on it and whatnot, um, it's it's you know it can be a problem. Um, and I think the other the the I think it's why you see so much enthusiasm by contrast for politicians like AOC, right? So she is a she's an absolute uh, genius at using social media, particularly Instagram stories that she filmed to performatively. Yeah. 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 So she performs. So what her constituents become are fans, right. which is very different than being a citizen and a constituent, right? Constituents, right. it's a there's a there's a back and forth with your elected official where they have responsibilities to you and you have demands you can make of them. Fans just have to adore and praise right. the, the the celebrity. 
So I think it's one of the ways in which the polarization that everybody worries about in politics is exacerbated. Because if you're a fan, then if anyone attacks your celebrity, you're going to just pounce on all that person. Right. And it, it becomes this cult of personality. And it, it does it for Trump. It does it for AOC and, and for others. For the kids, I think the um, the challenge of performing a, a, a false happiness and the flattening of you know their lives with these perfect filters, uh, it's really worrisome, right? Because they, they, if you look at rates of depression, anxiety, a lot of the, the sort of psychological health markers that we are concerned about as parents, um, it's not good. It doesn't yeah. look good. And I, and I can't, I don't, again, I wouldn't regulate this. this is, these are individual, individual choices parents and, and kids have to make. But it's, it's incredibly worrisome. And the bullying, all this stuff is just ongoing. And I know that the, the kind of pro-tech thing to say, the Silicon Valley thing is, well, you know, we're all just people. This happened before we had Instagram. But did it? I don't yeah, think it no, did. I, it. I, I, I agree There's an accelerant that. that has occurred with these platforms. There's something very exist. different about not being invited to the party on Saturday night and finding out at lunch on Monday mm -hmm. about how much fun it was. Right. It's another thing to be watching it live stream. In real time. While yeah. you're home crying. Right. right. I mean, that's just, they're different things. Right. And um, I don't know how you fix any of that. Well, you could have – this is where I think the, the competition, the alternatives point is important because you could have Facebook-controlled Instagram, which only cares about content. Content can be cruel. It can be happy. It can be neutral. It can be anything. Um, but there's nowhere else to go if you're – like where else are you going to go? I mean you can go to Snapchat. There are other little platforms that teenagers use. But there's no – real alternative to Instagram right now. Mm -hmm. So if we had one, if Facebook didn't have a lock on that market, maybe there would be a place where the, the sort of nerdy theater kids would create yep. their own little space and, and you would have more diversity. Ironically, um, Glenn Reynolds had a, has a great little pamphlet about this where he says he's kind of like the original blogosphere, right? Mm -hmm. Where you had a lot of weird, quirky people who would craft, you know, curate their own little audience and they'd have conversations back and forth and it was very organically uh, created and there might have been ads here and there, but they were definitely um, uh, chosen with the purpose of, of increasing that cohesive community, not you know uh, dividing it. And that doesn't that, that that could be a version of social media that we could get back to, but only if we tame some of these large beasts first. I think. Alas, uh, uh, there's a crowd of people um, at the door of the studio, and unlike normal, they're not trying to get out. <laughs> um, they're trying to get in because apparently uh, we have to get out of here. So we're going to have to call it uh, quits with Christine. Um, maybe Jack and I will get back in here and do some various sundry stuff. Um, I didn't get a chance to talk to Christine about her dogs and the pernicious metastasis of doodles in this country. I know. Um, problem. I'm, I'm part of the problem there. Doodle proliferation yes. is a huge issue. Yes, um, but anyway, love having you on. You're one of my favorite people. Thanks. And um, uh, Jack and I will be back for various and sundry in a bit. Okay, so it's kind of weird. Uh, we got chased out of the studio, um, and then I had lunch with Christine, and in the meantime, news came out that Paul Ryan was coming to AEI, and that John Bolton, former AEI colleague of ours, uh, is uh, out at the White House. So it's um, it's funny how things can happen fast these days. Uh, but we can – I don't know if I have any punditry available for that because I'm still – processing some of it um what do you think of the conversation with christine oh good you're not going to ask me about either of those things. i i'm i would you, you no no i don't i have nothing uh -huh. nothing to say uh i 
look, if, even if I didn't like that, that conversation the two of you had, I would refrain from saying so because I owe Christine Rosen a great debt. Uh-huh. She published all of my uh, output at the now deceased website Culturated back when I used to have takes aplenty. Now I... Now I just talk them instead of write them. It's mm-hmm. much, it's much, it requires much less work. Um, so yeah, I enjoy it though. Uh huh. But and, you you preface the way you preface that made it sound like no, it was just my my way of trying to unify all of my thoughts I to see. one okay. rather than have them be disjoint. Well, um, I love Christine. I've I've been a huge fan of Christine's for a very long time, and I'm not sure I'm where she is on the antitrust stuff but i think she makes a good case for it and i think it's worth thinking through i just have you know it's, it's a really complicated thing i tend as you know i'm a schumpeter you, you kids today say stan right what why where does that Look, come from it's from the an m&m song uh okay. about stan was a fan in this song which isn't really the the much of it is just kind of like spoken narrative actually and stan uh-huh. is a Eminem fan who makes a series of increasingly questionable life decisions that eventually result in his death because he's obsessed with Eminem. So if they did the remake of that absolutely terrible movie with uh, Robert De Niro and what's the guy, the black guy? Cape Fear? No, the guy who plays um, Blade. Wesley uh, Snipes. Wesley Snipes called The Fan. Today Uh, they would call it The Stan. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. uh, anyway, I've been a huge. I've been a Christine Rosen stan for a very long time. But that's now that now you make me sound like a stalker. So I'll just go well, back. You to You and fan. everyone else on the internet who uses it. That's why I have never called myself a stan of anything. Yeah, it's like weird that this sort of lapsed into unironic usage. I I I, I would think that Eminem is sort of like, yo, you're missing the point. Yeah. Uh, except he would rap that instead. That was that was a fantastic Eminem impersonation <laughs> you did right there. Hey, he probably if you just listen to him talk, he probably sounds more like me than you think because he's from Michigan yeah, after all. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Zoe is a stan of rabbits. <laughs> what following them until she catches them and kills them? No, Stan. Stan I don't think Stan kills Eminem in the song. I think he. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> he dies somehow. I think he like crashes a car or something like that. I don't know. It's been a long time since I've listened to that song. It's just weird how. Because I think I looked that up at one point that this was came from Eminem, but I only heard the word Stan in the last six months. Mm-hmm. And the song's like pretty old, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the first time I heard it was uh, uh, late July 2009. And by that point, it, it was like, I think it's on the Marshall Mathers uh, EP or something, which is early 2000s stuff. Yeah. So anyway, be that as it may, digressions are encouraged here. I'm I'm too much of a Joseph Schumpeter fan to uh, instantaneously buy into a lot of antitrust arguments about monopolies because I think that the thing that Schumpeter is pretty persuasive on is that monopolies without the aid of government don't last. And that's why I my, the hackles in the back of my neck went up when I'm – do you have hackles anyplace else? Anyway, the hackles in the back of my neck went up None when – that I want to know about. <laughs> um, when Zuckerberg started talking about how he was open to – Government regulation. Dominant firms tend to invite government regulation so they can stay dominant firms. And that kind of made me nervous. But anyway, I thought it was interesting. It's great to have her on and actually hear her talk because, you know, Pod doesn't let her do that very much. Um, 
And uh, I should bring up, speaking of pod, which by which I mean John Podorts, um, uh, I don't know if this is public news, but I am substituting for P.J. O'Rourke, who for some reason could not attend. He was supposed to be one of the roasters of Ben Shapiro um, at the commentary roast in a couple of weeks. And instead, I'm going to take P.J.'s place because not that anyone could take P.J.'s place, but I'm going to take his position on the rostrum roasting Ben Shapiro. So if anybody has any productive lines of uh, material um, for roasting Ben Shapiro, uh, please send them our way because uh, it's, uh, it's, it's hard to roast people. And, um, and it's not like, you know, Shapiro and I, um, you know, grew up on the mean streets of somewhere together or anything like that. So uh, now have you formulated your thoughts about John Bolton and, and <laughs> Paul Ryan? <laughs> yeah, I have now. I okay, have, oh, good. No, two minutes ago. Sweet, sweet. That's what I've been doing all this time. Uh, no, I don't have any. You can have some if you want. Yeah, um, I am. Um, you can pick some out of the air. I just didn't really feel like grabbing for them. I am uh, unsurprised by the fact that Bolton did not last. My very brief and cursory review of Twitter inclines me to believe that Noah Rothman is right that um, the initial round of uh, commentary about all this is going to be profoundly stupid. Present company excluded. Present company excluded. Just in, on the grounds that... Uh, Can you, are, are you, you're trying to be a meta-pundit before the actual punditry has, has even set in. That's difficult. Yes. Yes, that's true. Pre-meta. But, um, but all of this is happened before and all of this will happen again <laughs> and um everyone my hunch is, is that everybody is going to argue their priors about john bolton um and try to make this about what john bolton represents to uh people from a policy debate from like 10 years ago when in reality what bolton uh stood against was having a meeting with the taliban at camp david which is an astoundingly bad idea. And I I generally find the what if this was Obama uh, form of punditry to be the lowest form of punditry. But it is impossible not to ask what if, if, if Obama had asked the Taliban to come meet with him at Camp David on the eve of 9-11. It is inarguable to me that virtually every single one of the people who are defending Trump on this would be appalled and sanctimonious and and outraged and you know i have no problem with people um trying to end the war in afghanistan if we can actually end it on terms that improve the safety and security of the united states of america and our allies but the simple fact is, is that people the decision has been made to bug out and they're just trying to figure out a way to bug out in the way that makes the most sense and john bolton doesn't believe in bugging out and that's my sense about why he got got canned and it'll be interesting to see what John Bolton has to say now that he has left, because unlike a lot of people who went in to work for Trump, I think Bolton never let go of his own principles or ideological commitments. You may disagree with his ideological commitments and principles, but he, ha he had an agenda going in to get the stuff done that he believed in getting done. And Bolton's not a neocon. Bolton's a rubble-doesn't-make-trouble kind of guy, but he is a vigorous defender of American national security and national interests. And so it's the difference between him and Pompeo is that Pompeo plays the man. Pompeo plays Trump as a political matter, I think in part because Pompeo wants to run for Senate. 
um, Bolton played the bureaucracy and played the issues to his own ends. And eventually that wasn't going to fly anyway in the Trump administration. So it's, it's interesting that he's out. It'd be interesting to see what he says now and um, whether he decides to get crosswise with the administration or not. Um, I'm most interested in what his mustache will have to say about all of this. Well, you know, Trump hates facial hair. Yeah. And he's like the one. But the thing is, it's sort of like uh, if it's like McMaster's shaved head, right? Trump also doesn't like baldness. But when you really own the condition, right, it's not like 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 Bolton's mustache is so aggressively a mustache that I wonder if you get an exemption from the no mustache. It's not some wispy French thing, right? It is like it is it's like the face is basically just the setting for the mustache rather than yeah. the other way around very walrus um very yosemite sam oh yeah all right um i don't think we have anything that we actually have to get to today uh i ha- i have something that we could talk about okay uh that's sort of related to this <laughs> um i i watched stripes over the weekend did you really uh-huh what'd you think uh, I feel like you're gonna be you're gonna like me less after I I say what it's, I thought. That's not possible. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I I I didn't I didn't I don't think I actually laughed during it. Oh, I think I laughed when I think I laughed when uh, at the very beginning when um, Bill Murray's character asks for his basketball back uh-huh. and the guy he gets it back but it's thrown through a different window from mm-hmm. the one that, that he that was already broken. Um. See, now you're not revealing that Stripes failed to appeal to you because of your highly cultivated sense of humor, if that's the thing that you laughed at. It was just an amusing... Ah, I broke the window! <laughs> it was just a nice, like, uh, a comedy is about the sort of uh, subversion and conformity to expectations simultaneously. It's the best comedy, and that was... He gets his basketball back, but <laughs> the other window is broken. Yeah, I mean... The only place where I'll be sympathetic to you about this, because otherwise I'm just appalled, is that it's funny. If you go back and you watch Jack Parr or some of these guys who were considered absolutely hilarious in the 1950s and the 1960s. Yeah. um, There is something that if you're not cued into these completely sort of inarticulable mannerisms, like why certain mannerisms were funny at the time that aren't anymore, that... It's it's there's a weird subtext to a lot of this stuff. If you go back and look at, you know, I mean, I still think Charlie Chaplin was a genius, but there's I think moderns lose some appreciation of his facial expressions. You're gonna say that I just don't appreciate '80s comedy because I, I that's false. I love Airplane. I think Ghostbusters is hilarious. These are all. Well, then that, if you like Ghostbusters, is the like Airplane is a different form of humor entirely. But it's a contemporary form of humor. They're yeah, like two but, years apart. Yeah, but you know, there are serial killers who were born in 1962, and, <laughs> and there are, and then there were some born in 1993. Yeah. So anyway, my <laughs> point is, is that just because they come out at the same time, they are completely different brands of humor. I think, but the fact that you like Bill Murray in 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 Ghostbusters, but don't like him in Stripes, I find bizarre to me. And, well, I just he's supposed to be. He, you're supposed to like him, right? Uh-huh. Isn't that kind of the point? Yeah. The opening sequence of the movie just he just is like a slacker layabout and that's supposed to give me sympathy for him. So you didn't think John Candy was funny? Uh I mean 
what when the what the part where he says that he's swallowing a lot of aggression and also a lot of pizzas, also a lot of pizzas. And, uh, that's he's like begging for laughs yeah. in the way that's that's said. Um, I will say that may, maybe the problem is that I I saw Full Metal Jacket before I saw Stripes, which is weirdly like I I would love for someone to this could probably be done pretty easily. Someone could either recut Full Metal Jacket to be stripes in a trailer or vice versa like recut stripes to be full metal jacket because there's even there's even parallel scenes where the problem recruit is being dressed down by the sergeant mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. the bathroom mm-hmm. the, the, the bathrooms which look exactly the same basically yeah. um but obviously they have slightly different outcomes well so it's, it's funny you mentioned this because i think well your position is entirely wrong um yeah yeah okay the legitimate criticism i.e. my criticism, of <laughs> both Full Metal Jacket and Stripes. And we did not rehearse this. I did not know you were going to bring this up. But that I think like, I think Adam Baldwin is great in, in Full Metal Jacket. But as a general proposition, I think the first half of Full Metal Jacket is an amazing movie. Uh-huh. And the second half is kind of awful. And the same thing goes with Stripes, is that there's... You know, uh, the sages argue about whether or not the last funny scene for a while in in the second half of Stripes is when uh, John Candy or Oxberger, right? Dewey Oxberger. Yeah. Uh, explains to Cletus the Slackjaw Yokel or whatever that guy's name is. That... Oh, um, uh, Cruiser, who I learned is an alumnus of my high school, that actor. There you go. Explains to them that if they had been in Italy, he would have gotten the top bunk and all that kind of stuff. And then there's a long stretch of badness to Stripes, um, with the possible exception where uh, uh, what's his face, um, Hal Ramis is talking about picking up the girls with the RV. But basically, that's not great. And the Cold War humor is is derivative. But both movies have a bad second act problem. Um, that's the third act. Third act. Third well, act. Second half. You know. I mean. And and that part I, I am sympathetic to, but like, um, you know, one of the things we talked about this, this oh, that's right, that's that's the reason why this came up in the first place is one of the contenders for the um, the reading of for best act for the best accent competition uh-huh. um, on this podcast was going to be the mutt speech, yeah, where we're not Watusis, you know, all that kind of stuff, which came just totally like from nowhere. Like we have no, I have no sense at that point that uh, Winger has anything like that in his repertoire, and suddenly he's just like a patriot-inspiring dude. See, I, I guess you just don't get the frequency of 1980s slacker culture because that completely makes sense to me. And the funny thing though is <laughs> okay. about that movie. First of all, uh, Bill Murray's. That used to be part of Bill Murray's shtick, right, is to have this inspiring speech. So in Meatballs, which is a really mixed thing, my daughter loves it, but because it was made in Canada, it's just it, – anything that's vaguely Canadian is vaguely off. But Bill Murray is great in it, and um, uh, he has this inspirational speech in that, which is actually shockingly nihilistic because the whole refrain is, it just doesn't matter. And – Great um, advice. But then in Stripes, he gives that speech. And then uh, in the late 80s, that became a thing. People ripping off the Bill Murray inspirational speech thing in movies. So much so that at one point, his brother who had... Brian Doyle Murray. No, not him. The other one. There's another? But yeah. Um, he starred in a movie basically playing Bill Murray the way that like... Um, 
Jim Belushi played John Belushi in a couple uh-huh. movies, that kind of thing. And he gave his, I think it was called Car. It was something about cars or not, cars too. <laughs> no, it was like a, it was like a taxi driver kind of thing. Not taxi driver, the the Pacino thing, but like a De DC Niro. Cab. De Niro. Yeah, um, sorry, De Niro. Um, and he gave, and it was just a complete complete ripoff. Anyway. Uh, it disturbs me that you don't like stripes. Well, what's what's like what's the funniest thing in stripes? Oh, so th- this will all this will give us some common ground for. His well, I mean, so again, part of it has to do with the the sort of understated. You keep you keep referring to this this abstract vibe. Which yeah, is so the sarcasm is so like when uh, the recruiter is asking them if if the if. If they're gay and Howard Ramos is like, no, but we're willing to learn. Um, there's the um, – I think John Larroquette is brilliant in it as the as the dick lieutenant. Um, um, I – I see. I like recognized from the from his very first scene like, oh, he's the 80s a**hole in this movie. Right. There's but, always an – But he's, he's sort of – he kind of established that. I mean there's so many people who follow the student that he – like to this day, every time I trip on something, I say, "Have that removed." Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's where I get that from. Um, I don't know. You know, is there a movie on this flight? All the stuff with Judge Reinhold holding the drugs. The I don't know. It just it, it speaks to me. I, I, it's very difficult for me to sort of pick uh, for the first half. Pick a single thing that says that this is hilarious. It's just it is so ingrained in me. I mean that I can watch. From the first half, stripes for any ten minutes. It's not quite Animal House for me, but it's it's up there. Um, well, okay. So you've you've cited this vibe that I cannot that you can't. Well, no, but you've already vibe. you've already telegraphed that you're not going to find any of the examples I point out funny because you've said no, several looking, times that I'm you don't. For once, <laughs> that I can at least try to figure out why I I just did not was not amused by it. Um, All right. Well, we'll just have to agree, agree to disagree on this one. Um, was there something else I wanted to say? Uh, oh yeah, maybe maybe. So, how did, we should ask. I know Sonny is sort of out of the professional pundit business now. Sonny Bunch, former mm-hmm. Remnant guest, but um, do we know of his movie revisionism extended to taking the side of every '80s uh, jerk? I'm going to say jerk now because I'm going to have to bleep myself for once. Yeah, I know. Um, I was shocked. How exciting. I mean, that's just a trope. I don't know what else to call it. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. The '80s uh, poll. Like, yeah. Um, because I there's a I, I'm aware of the revisionist literature about the Karate Kid mm-hmm. that the Cobra Kai students were actually morally superior to Danny. Yeah. All right. If not morally superior, there's no there's there's no reason that he should have been able to beat them. Right. They were clearly more skilled, had done it for longer, uh, and he like resorted to unethical tactics <laughs> to defeat them. Well, there's that fantastic stand-up comedian bit about how there's no defending against the crane technique. Which, <laughs> when it's transparently obvious that you can defend against it. <laughs> yeah, um, but maybe it's just that I... The the 80s moral uh, framework of like, oh, yeah, there's this slacker who doesn't do anything, and that's the hero. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Maybe, yeah, maybe that's just something I, I'm like, really? That's the hero? What what kind of what kind of heroes are we making for our children? Our heroes should be... Yeah, you know, it's a good question. I mean, it's like The Breakfast Club. I'm more and more sympathetic to the high school principal. Because, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, they're all pains in the a- like, Yeah. Yeah. Um, Night and see um, what's his name? 
uh, Sapphire would have approved of your... Well, I don't know how you would have said that otherwise. Pain in the ass. Pains in the ass. Well, they're multiple. Yeah, exactly. Right? No, like I attorneys say, general. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a great Onion article about uh, William Sapphire ordering uh, three, uh, what, Whoppers? What are they? Whoppers Jr.? <laughs> that's, that's what it was. Um, but yeah, anyway. The, the, the thing is, you're dating yourself because there are plenty of youngs today who would not know what who William Sapphire was. Which is why you can't argue that I just am inexperienced in the 80s comedy milieu. I have uh-huh. seen plenty of them. I just did not find Stripes to be a great example. Um, I, you like Animal House? Yeah, Animal House is pretty funny. You still haven't seen Caddyshack? Yeah, I have. Okay. You like Caddyshack? Yeah, Caddyshack is funny. Um, Rodney Dangerfield's character in that would be <laughs> oh my arm uh would be a trump voter 100 percent. he like is trump in that movie basically yeah although in back to school he's even more like trump oh yeah yeah um except he kind of has a moral center <laughs> <laughs> um, so there is that um the have you ever seen caddyshack 2 no i have only let's see uh, comedy sequels that i've seen are airplane 2 uh, and Ace Ventura when nature calls. So no other comedies. Oh, Austin Powers, but two and three. It is. It. it, it I mean, I, I, this is not hyperbole. It is difficult to exaggerate how unbelievably bad Caddyshack Two is. I mean, it's like someone bet that they could ruin everything that was good <laughs> about the first one. Um, first of all, they couldn't get Dangerfield, and. So they had um, Jackie Mason playing the Dangerfield character, essentially. Uh-huh. And, um, and I don't know why they couldn't get Noonan. I mean, it's not like his career took off. <laughs> um, but and so instead they had a sort of a nerdy Jewish sitcom character guy in that kind of role. And um, Dan Aykroyd was the new sort of Bill Murray character in it. Yeah. He was terrible. <laughs> I mean, like, really terrible. And, uh, like, in the 80s, you know, there was that one epi- There was that one Halloween movie that didn't have anything to do with Michael Myers. Uh, it's Season of the Witch, which I believe yeah. is the third one. Right. Eight more days to Halloween, Halloween, silver, shamrock. <laughs> People said that in high school every single day after that came out. Um and the whole thing was like if you watched the commercial or whatever it was, yeah. you did bad things and blood came out of you or whatever. If you try to sit and watch Caddyshack 2, that's what will happen to you. <laughs> <laughs> it was terrible. Um, uh, ever see Digstown? No. Okay. You would like – well, I, I don't know now. <laughs> I don't know who you are. But Digstown, I think – I often list Digstown as one of the best underrated, underappreciated movies of the 1980s. Um and it's a con movie, and I love long con movies, and there's so few of them. In my mind, so few good ones. Um, well, on that cheery note, uh, I guess this one will run first, right? Cause, okay. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> sure. We don't, see, we're, Full transparency. We're, yeah, we're giving a people a peek behind the, the, the uh, curtain since, here. since you you dated all of the content to today. I know. That's that's what's dawning on me. Yeah. Um, Got no choice now. And I want to welcome Paul Ryan to uh, the American Enterprise Institute. Well, thanks, Joan. It's great to be here. <laughs> it's very exciting. We, things are moving so fast. He's now in the studio. <laughs> um, and uh, um, again, please spread the word. You can sign up for the G-File at Reagan35x.com. Uh, our Twitter handle is, handle is at Jonah Remnant. And I don't know if you if you haven't noticed this, you tend to get retweeted if you if you promote 
Um, this podcast, certainly by the robot account that runs the Jonah Remnant account, but often by me as well. And we certainly appreciate it. Word of mouth is super important. Anyway, uh, thanks again to Christine Rosen, and I'll see you guys next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. At 11? Uh-huh. What time is it now? Is it 11? It's 11. Okay. okay. Um, That's fine. We can wrap it up. All right. I want to that was my mistake. I didn't. We have this slot 10, 10 to 12 every uh, Tuesday in September, except today. Ah, okay. All right. Okay. That's all right. Well, I, I'm entitled to my raid. Go for it. <laughs>